invite you to turn in God's Word to Matthew's Gospel, the 13th chapter. As you're doing that, if you would also take the uh, responsive reading that's in the center aisle, disperse it down your aisle as well. Let's use the responsive reading. First of all, this is from the Belgic Confession. Article 24, man's sanctification and good works. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. For we do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. Nevertheless, they are of no account towards our justification. For it is by faith in Christ that we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works, any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Nay, we are indebted to God the good works we do, and not he to us. Let us therefore attend to what is written, and ye shall have done all the things that are commanded you. Say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards good works. But it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. For we can do no work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And although we could perform such works, still the remembrance of one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus then we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty. And our poor consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Now let's turn to God's Word. Matthew chapter 13. Starting at verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up 
since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And as we read farther in this chapter, that we need eyes to see, we need ears to hear your truth. And we pray, Lord, for your grace, that we may have eyes that see and ears that hear your truths. And we ask that you'll speak powerfully through Pastor Bob, powerfully that we may go forth out of here full of your word, spreading your word to those around us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First of all, the parable that is before us. This is a pretty familiar parable. Uh, it's recorded for us not only by Matthew, but Mark records it in the fourth chapter. Luke records it in the eighth chapter. And we'll be actually turning to the passage in, in Luke in a few moments as well. But this illustration is pretty vivid, right? They're sitting there, the crowd is on the shore. Jesus is in a boat, and so we, we can see the picture. But Jesus now begins to speak in parables. He begins speaking of, of stories, things they know. These, these were things that, that in their minds they, they could see. They could see this happening. They could see this taking place. They can see a sower going out. They can see the seed bag in their mind's eye. And they can see the seed being scattered and in the various places. I don't think we have to take a great deal of time to, to relook at these verses of 1 through 9. But it is a good reminder to us to stop and to think, what is the parable really all about? What, what is Jesus actually teaching here? What, what, what is the main conclusion? Well, part of that depends on whether or not you get the explanation right. If we just take the parable, and now we sit back from the parable and we say, well, I wonder who the sower is. I wonder what the seed is. I wonder what the soils are. I wonder what the birds are. I wonder what the thorns are. And, and we begin to extrapolate what they may mean. We may all come up with some pretty different conclusions about what this is all about. In this case, however, Jesus himself has given us an explanation. So we have the basic parable of a sower. Somebody who is going out, scattering seed, and some of that seed falls in locations where it's not going to grow. The other seed does. And the seed that falls into the good soil, the soil that has been prepared, the soil that has been made ready, that soil produces. Now, what is this all about? Well, turn as well to, again, to Matthew chapter 13. Go to verse 18. In between this is 
Brother Clausen has said, uh, Jesus explains why it is he's speaking in parables. Interestingly, he then comes back and explains the parable. One wonders, was there a bewildered look on their faces? And it's like, okay, I, I just explained why I'm doing this in parables, but it's obvious you're not getting it, so let me explain. Pick it up with me at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. And what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, keep your finger there and go to Luke chapter 8. Just for a brief moment. Luke chapter 8. Go down to verse 11. Okay, you'll note that in 4 through 8, he's given the parable of the sower again. But now go to verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And then we continue on with the same explanation we were given before. So the question is, who is the sower? We know what the seed is. The seed is the word of God. Who's the sower? The answer to that question is, it's the Lord. It's not us. We're not the sower. You say, well, who are, who are we? Who are human beings? Who are people in, in this parable? We're the soil. People, the one who hears, the one who hears. Jesus is using the various types of soil that are depicted in the parable to describe various types of people in their relationship to the word. There are those who when they hear the word, it has no effect. In fact, that's several of the categories. It doesn't bear any fruit. But there is this one category where when the word is planted into the soil, the soil receives that seed and the seed produces fruit out of the soil. 
Now let me ask you a very simple question. Does the soil get to prepare itself? Does soil get to determine its own nature? Okay. I, I used to have a dirt collection. It's been thrown out. But I used to have a dirt collection. And I was collecting dirt from all the different states that I had traveled to. And people brought me dirt from foreign countries. I probably brought in diseases of some sort. Who knows? But they were all in jars sealed. So I'm sure nothing ever got out. Okay? And, it, and it was amazing because, you know, you'd have red dirt. You'd have kind of a clayish colored dirt. You'd have dark black dirt. Sands of different colors were there as well. And, and, and I, that, that dirt didn't get to determine its color. That is the work of God. The soil doesn't get to determine what it is. That is the work of God. The good soil is not because the soil said, Hey, I want to be good soil. I want to receive. The seed. And I want to produce. No, that soil was plowed, it was disc, it was tilled. That soil had somebody else working on it. This is what Jesus is teaching us in the parable. That God, as the sower, prepares our hearts, prepares our souls to receive the word... And when that word is planted in us by his work, the ground doesn't go, hey, we want seed, we want seed, we want seed. God plants the seed in us. That soil produces. That soil becomes fruitful. Notice in Jesus' parable, Jesus doesn't say, the sower went out to sow seed. Some of the seed fell into the good soil. The good soil received it. The plant grew up, but then it withered and died. No, that which is in the good soil always produces. Doesn't produce the same quantity, but it always produces. See, my friends, this parable is really about the connection between justification and sanctification. If you thought this parable was going out about winning souls, that is not what this parable is about. This parable is not about you and I going out into the world and winning a hundred Christians or sixty Christians or thirty Christians for the Lord. We don't win one single solitary soul. It is the Lord who plows. It is the Lord who sows. It is the Lord who gives the increase. It is the Lord who gives the miracle of new life to that seed. It is the Lord and grace that provides productive, sanctified Christian lives. So let's make the connection. Let's think about what's really going on here. 
This is really about God's continual grace. I think far too many of us, perhaps even in the reform camp, think of grace as a one-time event of God. You say, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is this. Well, grace comes to us at a moment in time. We receive God's grace. God is gracious to us. And, and what we mean by that is we're converted. We're born again. That's grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yep, once I was blind, now I can see. That's what God did. That one-time event of grace. Jesus is presenting to us here in Matthew chapter 13 the fact that grace and the work of God in our hearts and in our lives does not end with our conversion, does not end with us being born again, does not end with us coming to faith. But God's grace is ongoing. It is continual. It is continual. And it is God's grace that nourishes us and feeds us even now. It is God's grace that is at work in our hearts. It is God's grace that leads to our sanctification. It is God's grace that will lead to our glorification. And when we are in glory, we still will never stand on our own. But we will always, always stand in grace. God's grace is that which permeates our lives as Christians. It is, in a sense, the lifeblood. And it is that grace, you see, that then causes us to produce. Produce what? Good works. A multitude of them. That out of our lives, flows good works. Why? Because God's grace has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we might declare his praises. See, it's not that in the Arminian view we declare God's praises, therefore God says, oh, there's somebody down there praising me. I think I'll save that person. How nice of them. I kind of owe it to them to save them. After all, they've, they're singing my praises. They've committed their lives to me. Therefore, I should give them some grace. I'll call them out of darkness. They're such good people. I'll forgive their sins. Now, that's the, uh, that Arminian view of things. In the Reformed view of things, as we have been going through this Belgic, and as Christ is explaining to us here in Matthew chapter 13, God plowed, God prepared, God opened up the earth, God planted the seed, God causes the seed to die and then come to life, are being born again. God nourishes us, God strengthens us, God is the one who is behind our productivity. Ask any farmer. Are you causing the plant to grow? 
Are you causing those ears to come on the stalk? Any good Reformed Christian farmer is going to say, no, 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 I, I, that's God. That's right. That which comes out of our lives, the good works that we do, are a result of grace. God's grace in our heart and life. You see, true faith results in good works. This is the way it works. Those who, who the seed has been planted in, they grow. That seed grows. It develops. There's no such thing as good soil that isn't producing. Because God has made the soil produce. It's God who does this. It's God who causes this to happen. It's not that God stops the process of our salvation at justification and God says, okay, I've done enough. Look at all the things I have done for you. I now declare you justified before me. Now the rest of this is all up to you. Now I call you to live a sanctified holy life. Go out there, do it on your own. Soil, till up yourself. Soil, produce. Soil isn't going to produce anything on its own. Except what? Weeds and thistles and sin. That's what we produce. Ever notice you, you rarely have to plant a weed? They just come. God, in his grace. See, we could, let me put it this way. We could not talk about our sanctification and being sanctified, living a holy life, living a life that is pleasing to God. How? By doing good works. That's what a sanctified life is. That's what a holy life is. A holy life is one that is a productive life. Productive how? Of doing good works. Of doing that which God desires for us to do. We can't do that on our own. If God stopped the process at our justification, how miserable we would be. That's why the Belgic talked about the fact, if we're not relying upon the merits of Christ, but we're relying on our own merits, think of the doubt that would cause. Am I saved? Have I done enough? What would be enough? How much must I do? What qualifies me? We'd be tossed to and fro without any certainty. Our poor consciences would be continually vexed if we were not relying upon the merits of Christ. And you see, notice that they're reading that, that they're putting that into our sanctification and good works. Because right? we're not earning brownie points with God. True faith, as Jesus is explaining in this parable. Always results in good works. Why? Because God is nourishing us. 
God is strengthening us, and God is the one who is actually the one producing those good works within us. I can't produce a good work. I can't do it. Only God can produce a good work out of my life. You can't do a good work. Only God can do a good work. Only God can do that which is holy and pure and righteous and just. Only God can do that. I can't. But God does. So thirdly, let's think about the doctrine that is involved here. And before I do so, I need to read that which uh, one of the commentators on the Belgic has written as far as its context. Why did this become a necessary part of the Belgic Confession? And the commentator I'm using is a fellow by the name of Kim Ritterbacher. He's a pastor uh, out in uh, California, Christ Memorial Church, I believe it is. Um, he writes the following. Before we turn to the specifics of Article 24, it is very important that we take note of the fact that the discussion of sanctification as we find it in our confession takes place against the backdrop of Roman Catholicism and Anabaptism, which our confession was written to oppose. And we've made the point before, the fact we're still dealing with the same Roman Catholicism they were, still the same catechism, still the same theology as was there in the 1500s. That hasn't changed. Okay? And, and we still live in a world and in a society, perhaps in the mentality of much of liberal Christianity or liberal Protestantism today, or, or maybe just mainstream American thought of some sort, um, as far as the, the Anabaptism is concerned. Having thoroughly confused justification with sanctification, Rome's response to the Reformed and the biblical doctrine of justification is that justification is an instantaneous, once-for-all declaration to the effect that the sinner is presently righteous. This not only gives no incentive for the Christian to do good works, which Rome believes are meritorious, but it leads to the sin of presumption. Rome has always believed that it is a sin for someone to state with confidence that they are certain of possessing eternal life when they don't know if they will remain in the faith until the end of their lives. Furthermore, Roman Catholic theologians consider the doctrine of Christ's righteousness being imputed to the sinner to be legal fiction. Since, according to them, God is pronouncing a sinner to be righteous, well, they still remain sinners. And this would be a falsehood. So after carefully defining what it means to be justified on the grounds of the merits of Christ, received through the means of faith alone, in Articles 22 through 23, our confession must define and clarify the role of good works in the life of the justified. So on the one hand... Okay. This article is written against the backdrop of Roman Catholicism that is saying, you Reformed people got this whole thing of justification and sanctification mixed up. 
It is by your good works that you are justified. Christ only makes it possible for you to be saved. You have to finish the deal. You have to seal the deal. So you do your good works in order to earn merit with God. And God then rewards your merit by justifying you as the sinner. Obviously, the, the confession has taken a much different approach to that. Okay? It would be as if to say, here is the ground, and out of this ground grew a crop. And we'd say, how'd the crop get there? I don't know, it just came. It just came. The ground just started producing a, a great harvest on its own. Nobody sowed. Nobody plowed. Nobody, it just came. Did it on its own. Well, that would be, as, as we understand, in conflict with the word of God. There is none that is righteous. There is none that does good. Even the best of that which we do is but filthy rags in the sight of God. Now, on the other side of this debate were these Anabaptists. And some of you might want to take note of this given our trip this coming Tuesday. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, present a completely different sort of problem. Since many Anabaptists believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to believers directly apart from the Word and the sacraments, Anabaptists often saw sanctification without any consideration of justification as the heart of the Christian life. In Anabaptist piety, being a Christian is following Jesus' example, living a simple and uncomfortable and uncomplicated life, sometimes a communal life, and avoiding as much contact with the world and its institutions as possible. This not only denies the doctrine of creation and the cultural mandate, but it separates the work of God's Spirit from the Word and sacrament. See, what is it in Jesus' parable that causes production? The word of God. In the Anabaptist view, no, it's separated from the word. It's separated from the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's these revelations that one receives on their own. And the more one lives a separate life from the world, rather than being productive in the world, the more one removes oneself, the more sanctified one will be, and that is the basis of your salvation. It all hinges on how sanctified you are. You see what's happened then, that, that the crux of this falls then upon man once again. It falls upon us to live such a holy life that that's what gives it in. Boy, you know, if I buy a gas engine, boy, that makes me pretty worldly. I may not get into heaven. If I own a, uh, a phone, that makes me pretty worldly. I may not get into heaven. If I wear colored clothing, I may not get into heaven. Because I have to live this separated life. And unless I live this separated life, I am not saved. And the question is then, what happened to Christ? See, in the Anabaptist view, I am justified by my sanctification. It is my sanctification, it is my holy life 
that justifies me in the sight of God. And although they're coming at it from two completely different directions, Roman Catholicism and the Anabaptists are actually saying the same thing. Our good works become the basis of our salvation. The Reformed faith is taking a much different approach. And it is saying that no, our good works flow out of. They are a result of our justification. So let me make three points. First, only justified sinners can do spiritually good works. An unjustified person can do no good works. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, had stated this. In fact, it's also included in uh, article 24 that we had read, that whole discussion about trees. Okay? Matthew 7, verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. See, it's the same thing as Matthew 13 with the soil. The good soil produces what? Good fruit. But here Jesus dives into it a little bit more. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree, good soil, cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What will you recognize? Those who have been justified. Those who have been plowed by the Holy Spirit. Those that God has planted the seed, the word of God in their hearts. Those who have come to new life in Christ. What will you see? You will see fruit. That's what you're going to see. See, those good works, that production, that good fruit, isn't what justifies us, but it verifies the faith in us. The fruit, the good fruit, verifies the fact that we are indeed people who have been justified in the sight of God. Is my justification then contingent upon the good works? No. But it verifies it. It confirms it. To who? One's own heart. So that we don't doubt. See, this is the grace of God. He doesn't want us to question. He doesn't want us to doubt. That's why he doesn't leave it dependent upon us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. How? To sanctify us so that we produce good fruit. Because what does that good fruit do? It confirms the fact that we have been justified. So I don't need to doubt. I don't need to toss to and fro. Am I saved? Aren't I saved? Why? Because by your fruit, you will know them. Not how many people have I brought to Christ. Think of, think of how silly that is. 
My salvation is contingent upon how many people I have brought to Christ. I can't even bring myself to Christ. How can I bring somebody else to Christ? I can't. Only God, by his grace, can do this work. Secondly, good works are the necessary consequence of true faith. A good tree produces good fruit. Good soil produces seed that produces a hundred, sixty, and thirty-fold. If you can find it quickly, the book of Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us... See, see... This grace thing, I'm not just making this up. This is what God's word says. See, for but the grace of God has appeared. What has it done? It bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is that? Good works. What caused that? Grace. Grace brings that about. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. What do those who have been justified, what do those who by true faith, not of themselves, it is a gift of God, it is a work of God's grace. What do those who have experienced God's grace and in their heart and in their life, what do they do? They do good works. They're zealous for them. That ground can't help but produce. The fertile soil of our hearts and souls prepared by the Lord can't help but produce good works. The same as somebody else? No, because some are 30, some are 60, some are 100. This isn't a comparison thing. This isn't a, hey, are you doing as much as them? No. The question is, what's going on? Is there the production of good works coming out of true faith in our lives? Thirdly, going to look at a number of quick passages and then I'll just simply fill in the blank. Romans chapter 3. And, and, and perhaps this is what we need the greatest reminder of in all of this. Romans chapter 3. It's the text we were at last Lord's Day, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith. Where does righteousness come from? Where does sanctification come from? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, this is the work of God. It's not some cooperative effort. This is what God does. I can take no credit. You can take no credit for the good works that we do. This is God's work. The 
with the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So who did it all? God. God does the righteousness. God does the sanctification. God does the redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does Paul add that? Because it's not of Paul. Paul recognizes that the only good that Paul can do is out of God's grace. It is God at work. Go to another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God. One more. Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Chapter 3. Verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as a loss... Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him. Not having. A righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. That depends on faith. Where does righteousness come from? It comes from God. It doesn't arise from within my heart. So if you're taking notes, what's the point? The point is this. We can't add any righteousness to the complete righteousness we already have in Christ. My good works don't add to righteousness. It doesn't make me more righteous. I already have in Christ complete righteousness. And on that I can swing. Because he who began a good work in us, he will bring it to its conclusion. Does this make us lazy? No. It ought to make us zealous for good works. Amen?
Father, we want to be a Christian. We want to live like Christ. We want to live holy lives. We want to live the life that you call us to in the Word. We want to live a life of good works. We want to live that productive life that honors and glorifies and pleases you. For you are the one at work. And we thank you. We thank you for it. And on the day of our death, Father, we too can say with the Apostle Paul as he does there in Philippians, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. In his name, God's people again say, Amen.